Hey everybody, welcome back to Sports Island. As you know, Sports Island is your getaway destination for sports news, and of course, I am your host, Rick Mitchell. Now, this week was filled with both drama and excitement. Uh, the National Hockey League is on to the second round of their playoffs. The National Basketball Association is fully underway in their first round of the playoffs. And, of course, Major League Baseball giving us more drama and the PGA Tour providing a legitimate spectacle. So it was another great week in sports. We'll go ahead and uh, dive right in and take a look at what went down. And, of course, we'll lead off in the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's tournament was the Northern Trust which was held at TPC Boston in Norton, Massachusetts. It was the beginning of the FedEx Cup playoffs, which means that the best of the best were out there playing. Now, since it's the playoffs, only the top 70 players in the FedEx Cup standings after this past weekend's Northern Trust advanced to next weekend's BMW Championship. And there was a lot of movement in the standings. But the golf this past weekend was just otherworldly. On Friday's round, we saw two guys fire a 60 or below. Dustin Johnson posted a career-best 11-under round of 60. He was 7-under through his first five holes. That's just unbelievable. And not to be outdone, former Texas Longhorn Scotty Scheffler fired an outrageous 12-under 59. Scheffler was just lights out. Uh, His 59 was only the 12th time on tour that a player has shot sub-60. And that was just the appetizer for this weekend. The exceptional golf continued all the way through the weekend. And Scotty Scheffler kind of tailed off the later it got into the weekend. But Dustin Johnson did the opposite of tail off. He did not tail off. Uh, In fact, DJ just kept on rolling. And not only did Dustin Johnson win this weekend, he won with a score of 30 under par. That's just ridiculous. DJ tied for the second lowest score in 72-hole tournament in PGA Tour history. The lowest score to par on record was Ernie Els back in 2003 with a score of 31 under par in the Century Tournament of Champions. Well, Jordan Spieth recorded a 30 under par in that same tournament back in 2016. So DJ tied that score of 30 under par here this past weekend. And to put Johnson's victory into even more perspective, he won by 11 shots over the second place finisher, Harris English. Just think about that for a minute. Like this tournament wasn't even close after Saturday. DJ made a remarkable 40-foot eagle putt on 18 to finish up Saturday's round three and take a five-shot lead into Sunday. And he turned that five-shot lead into an 11-shot victory. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When DJ has it all working, he is the best golfer in the world. And not only did this victory move... Dustin Johnson up to number one in the FedEx Cup standings and moved him up to number one in the world rankings. 
I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but DJ was one of my picks to click this past weekend. In fact, let's revisit those picks to click. Now, last week, I gave you Daniel Berger, Bryson DeChambeau, and Dustin Johnson as my picks to click for the Northern Trust. And for the first time on Sports Island, we have a winner-winner chicken dinner for Rick's picks to click. And it was also the first time that I recorded two top five finishes. And let's just get Bryson DeChambeau out of the way. Uh, He finished at even par through two rounds, missing the cut by three strokes. I was really surprised by this. Uh, I figured he was going to contend this weekend. But he fired a pair of 71s, carding three birdies and three bogeys in each of his two rounds. I thought he would have had more success, like I said, but he really never just found his game. But Daniel Berger, I mentioned last week how he's been the most consistent golfer since the restart. And boy, did he prove that to be true. Berger finished third with a score of 18 under par. Now that score would have been a winning score in most tournaments. But not this weekend. And my other pick to click, of course, was Dustin Johnson. I just had a feeling about DJ this week. Uh, He fired a 67, 64, 60, and 63, which was good enough for 30 under and the victory. And that 30 under includes three bogeys over the course of the weekend as well. I don't really have anything else to say that I haven't already said, but DJ is locked in. His victory this past weekend was his 22nd victory on tour and fifth career victory in the FedEx Cup playoffs, which ties Rory McIlroy for the most all-time. And Dustin Johnson has also won the Northern Trust three times at three different courses. I guess he's just got a knack for this tournament. And he's looking as good as ever, just in time for the year's final two majors coming up over the next couple months. But this weekend, the PGA Tour heads over to Olympia Fields Country Club in Olympia Fields, Illinois, just 35 minutes from Chicago. It is the BMW Championship. And as mentioned previously, the field this week is only going to feature the top 70 players in the FedEx Cup standings. So again, we get nothing but the top-ranked players, and it should be another sensational tournament this weekend. But let's check out Rick's picks to click for this weekend's BMW Championship. And I'll start off with Justin Thomas. JT is number three in the world rankings, and he's coming off two less-than-stellar weeks. Uh, Thomas finished 37th at the PGA Championship and 49th here this past weekend at the Northern Trust. But he is the defending BMW Championship winner, and I can see him snapping out of his uh, mini slump, so to speak. I like for Justin Thomas to finish safely inside the top 25 this week. My second pick to click this week is going to be Colin Morikawa. Morikawa is ranked number five in the world, and he's coming off a missed cut this past week at the Northern Trust. But since the PGA Tour's restart a couple months ago, Morikawa has a second-place finish and two wins, including the PGA Championship a couple weeks ago. And since he missed only his second career cut this past weekend, I like for Morikawa to come out looking sharp this weekend. But my final pick to click is going to be a first. And it's a first in the fact that I'm picking the same guy for the second week in a row for the first time on the podcast. 
And my final pick to click is going to be Dustin Johnson. I mean, did you see that performance this past weekend? How can you not think he's going to be near the top of the leaderboard this week? Even if he shoots half of the 30 under he shot this past weekend, he's still going to contend and possibly even win. He has the most FedEx Cup playoff wins in PGA Tour history. And when he plays like he did this past weekend, again, best golfer in the world. Call me lame or whatever you want, but it is what it is. I'm picking guys that I think are going to win or finish near the top of the leaderboard. And I think Dustin Johnson fits that bill this week. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League. And this past week, the NHL finished up the quarterfinal round of their playoffs. And a couple weeks ago, I made my picks for those quarterfinal rounds. And I had to redeem myself after the abysmal 1-7 record I posted in my uh, qualifying round picks. But let's revisit my uh, NHL quarterfinal picks. And we'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The number one seeded Philadelphia Flyers played the number eight seed Montreal Canadiens. I was surprised to even see Montreal in this round after their demolition of the Pittsburgh Penguins in the qualifying round. I took the Flyers in six games, and I was right about both. Uh, Philadelphia sent Montreal home in six games. But next, the number two seed Tampa Bay Lightning played the num- uh, number seven seed Columbus Blue Jackets. And Columbus looked really good in the qualifying round, but I just felt that their luck was going to run out against the juggernaut that is the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I picked the Lightning in seven games. And Tampa Bay actually won the series in five games, including two overtime wins. And you knew it was going to be a series when uh, game one went into five overtimes. Uh, But next up, the number three seed Washington Capitals played the number six seed New York Islanders. I just didn't like the way the Capitals looked in the qualifying round. They just looked flat and nothing like the Washington Capitals that we've seen here in the recent years of the playoffs. So I took the Islanders in six games. And New York actually beat Washington in five games. The Islanders just looked even more impressive than they did in the qualifying round. Uh, But finally, the number four seed Boston Bruins played the number five seed Carolina Hurricanes. And the Hurricanes were coming off a sweep of the New York Rangers in the qualifying round. So I felt pretty confident about the way they were playing, especially since Boston looked so pedestrian in their qualifying round. I took Carolina in seven games. Then mid-series, Boston Bruins goalie Tuka Rask decided to leave his team hanging and opt out for the remainder of the playoffs. Well, I don't know what happened to the Bruins, but that lit a fire underneath him because Boston, after Rask opted out, Boston went on to win three straight games, including an amazing comeback in the third period of game four. Boston won the series in five games. So overall, I went 3-1 and one in my Eastern Conference picks. That's not too shabby. But in the Western Conference, the number one seed Vegas Golden Knights played the number eight seed Chicago Blackhawks. And Chicago proved in the qualifying round that they are just simply built for the playoffs year after year. But then they ran into the buzzsaw that is the Vegas Golden Knights. I was tempted to take Chicago, but I ended up taking Vegas in seven games. 
And Vegas looks like a team possessed right now. They just dominated the series from start to finish, and they ended up sending the Blackhawks home in five games. But next, the uh, number two seed Colorado Avalanche played the number seven seed Arizona Coyotes. And I completely did not expect the Coyotes to even be in this round. I called Arizona's qualifying round win a Cinderella story, but I also expected it to end this round. So I took Colorado in six games. Colorado actually ended up winning in five games. But uh, Colorado looked really good, and they actually had two, uh, two games, games four and five, where they scored seven goals in each game to close the series out. But uh, the next up, the number three seed, Dallas Stars, played the number six seed, Calgary Flames. Now, I told you that Dallas is my favorite team, but they looked atrocious in the qualifying round. And Calgary looked the opposite in their qualifying round, so I did not feel great about my Stars' chances in this series. I picked Calgary in five games with the hopes that I would be wrong. And this was the only pick that I was so glad to be wrong about. Dallas came out swinging and finally looked like the team that I know that they can be. Dallas won the series in six games, including a monster game six to close the series out. In that game six, the Stars became the first team in NHL history to be down by three goals in a playoff game and then win that same game by three goals or more. But finally, the number four seed, St. Louis Blues, played the number five seed, Vancouver Canucks. And Vancouver looked really solid in the qualifying round, and St. Louis was just terrible. And I thought that the defending Stanley Cup champs would come out guns blazing this series. And man, I was wrong about that. The Blues, I I picked the Blues in five games. And they got down 2-0 in the series, but they won games 3 and 4 to even the series. And then Vancouver just came out and showed some serious grit. Uh, They took games 5 and 6 to win the series in six games. So I went uh, 2-2 in the Western Conference picks to finish my qualifying round with an overall record of 5-3. So that's much better. I definitely redeemed myself this round. But the semifinal round began this past weekend as the NHL is wasting no time with these playoff games. And I made my semifinal round picks before the games got started this past Saturday, so let's check out those picks. In the East, of course, the number one seed Philadelphia Flyers, they're playing the number six seed New York Islanders. And for me, this series was just extremely hard to predict. I mentioned in my original quarterfinal round selections that I thought Philadelphia had a good chance to represent the Eastern Conference in the Stanley Cup Finals with how well they had been playing. But after watching the Islanders just torch the Capitals, I can't get over that. The Islanders are playing some really good hockey. And they have it all clicking. And their coach, Barry Trotz, is just one of the best. He's playoff tested and has his guys Locked and loaded. And these have been two of the hottest Eastern Conference teams in the bubble so far. But uh, I'm going to take the upset here, and I'm actually going to pick the Islanders in six games. I just really like them. They're not exciting to watch, but, man, they just get it done. Uh, the other series in the East is the number two seed Tampa Bay Lightning 
playing the number four seed Boston Bruins. And Boston's already proved me wrong once. Uh, Yaroslav Halak, the goalie, came in to replace Tuka Rask, and all he did was string together three wins in a row. But I just cannot see Boston beating Tampa Bay without Tuka Rask. Uh, Tampa Bay's lineup is just too loaded. With Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov, and the playoff hero so far for them, Braden Point, who has two overtime game-winning goals. I think Boston's going to hang in there, and I think they're going to make it interesting. Uh, They've already won game one of this series, but uh, I'm going to take Tampa Bay in seven games. And in the Western Conference, uh, the number one seed Vegas Golden Knights are playing the number five seed Vancouver Canucks. Both teams looked good last round, but my God, the way Vegas played, they're not losing this series. Vancouver was probably the best matchup for Vegas in terms of their chances of winning as compared to uh, the other two teams in the West. So I just like for Vegas to win the series in six games. But the other series in the West is the number two seed Colorado Avalanche against the number three seed Dallas Stars. And for me, this was the hardest semifinal round series to predict. I don't like the match, this matchup for the Stars either. Uh, Colorado is fast, like really fast. Nathan McKinnon is a top three player in the league, and he is just lightning in a bottle. Uh, the Avs proved last round that they can score from anywhere. Uh, now, scoring was a problem for the Stars in the qualifying round, but they were able to figure it out in the quarterfinal round against Calgary. And they did so really without any production from their top line of Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, and Alexander Radulov. And there's no way that those guys are going to stay quiet this round as well. And in fact, they've, uh, they've had a pretty good start to the series so far. Um, it, uh, my original... Prediction was going to be a caveat that if, um, if, if the big three for Dallas didn't show up, the Avalanche were going to win. Uh, but I like the way that Dallas closed the series against Calgary. They won three games in a row, scored a bunch of goals, including their depth players. And here so far, two games into this series, uh, they've looked every bit as nasty as they did those first or last three games against Calgary. Uh, My original prediction was Dallas in seven games over Colorado. Uh, Dallas is currently sitting up two games to nothing, so we'll see how that turns out. I expect the Avalanche to come out uh, flying in game three. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball, and we'll just get this out of the way right now. Another week and another set of positive coronavirus tests in the MLB. It's like clockwork. Uh, The MLB is really struggling to tread water with these tests. And this past week's victim was the New York Mets. But the good news is that the Mets only had two members of their organization test positive uh, for the virus, which, of course, forced the postponement of their midweek series against the Florida Marlins, who just seemed to not be able to get out of the way of these positive tests. Uh, But out of an abundance of caution, the MLB decided to postpone the Subway Series between the Mets and Yankees that was scheduled for this past weekend. 
Uh, the Yankee series was only postponed out of caution. Uh, the Mets have not announced any additional positive tests since the original two. But good Lord, this is, this is just getting comical at this point. Um, the MLB is showing that they are just content on plowing through these positive tests with postponements and doubleheader after doubleheader makeup games. And given the circumstances, I'd say that the MLB has actually done a pretty good job of staying afloat. Uh, ESPN baseball insider Buster Olney said it best. Uh, Olney said that uh, the MLB is, quote, a paddleboat in a hurricane right now. And Major League Baseball has managed to get through all these positive tests and keep playing. So hopefully that continues because we are not wanting that paddleboat to capsize in the hurricane, even though it seems inevitable. And each week that goes by is just another week that the MLB's decision to not do a bubble format is coming back to bite them. But the MLB is providing the blueprint for other sports to deal with outbreaks of tests moving forward. So that is, uh, I guess, the positive outlook on things, especially with the NFL season quickly approaching. And in addition to some more positive tests, it wouldn't be another week in baseball without some more drama. Uh, The midweek series between the Texas Rangers and the San Diego Padres was the pot stirrer this week. The two teams played a home-and-home series, uh, with the first two games being in Texas and the last two games being in San Diego. Well, the drama came during the first game of the series here in Texas. San Diego was up 10-3 in the eighth inning. The bases were loaded for the Padres' young phenom, Fernando Tatis Jr. The pitch count was 3-0. Tatis was given a take sign by the third base coach. Well, Tatis ignored the take sign and swung at a waist-high fastball. And Tatis put that fastball in the seats for a grand slam, extending the Padres' lead to 14-3. Well, the next batter for the Padres was all-star third baseman Manny Machado. The Rangers had just changed pitchers, so their pitcher was Ian Jabot, uh, who came in following the Grand Slam. Jabot threw his first pitch way behind Manny Machado's back, and it was so far behind Machado that it was just completely obvious that the pitch was in response to Tatis' Grand Slam on the previous 3-0 pitch. No ejections or warnings were issued, although the umpire crew did meet on the field to discuss the situation. And now the Padres would go on to win the game 14-4. to um, But after the game, Rangers manager Chris Woodward said, quote, There's a lot of unwritten rules that are constantly being challenged in today's game. I didn't like it, personally. And Woodward was referring to Tatis' Grand Slam. But then Woodward went on to say, Quote, you're up by seven in the eighth inning. It's typically not a good time to swing 3-0. It's kind of the way we were all raised in this game. But like I said, the norms are being challenged on a daily basis. So just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not right. Close quote. Now, San Diego Padres manager Jace Tingler wasn't entirely pleased, noting the missed take sign. But Tingler was pretty noncommittal, saying, quote, he's young a free spirit focused on all those things. That's the last thing we'll ever take away. But it's a learning opportunity. Close quote. 
And these post-game comments from both sides just opened up a can of worms from around baseball. The criticism was unbelievable. And really, I'm in agreement. As a, I'm a Texas Rangers fan. But I just can't go along with Chris Woodward's argument. Like, I get baseball has unwritten rules and that a 3-0 pitch is usually taken about 98% of the time. Um, but the games this year, especially in a shortened season, are more valuable than ever. So I don't have a problem with Tatis swinging on a 3-0 pitch. He's trying to help his team win games. And Fernando Tatis has become one of the best young players in the game. Uh, the kid's unreal. He's on a rage this year, and his numbers so far, extrapolated over the course of a full 162-game season, would just be video game numbers. But if the Rangers are complaining about the Grand Slam on a 3-0 pitch, the solution is quite simple. Don't get down in a count 3-0. And don't get down by seven runs. It's pretty simple. The Rangers were hot garbage in that game. And it didn't matter what they did. They weren't winning the game, Grand Slam or not. Play better. Uh, Fix yourself before you start worrying about these unwritten rules. And the rules are unwritten for a reason. They aren't actual rules. Nobody should stop playing hard because the other team is playing so poorly. Now, after the dust settled, Rangers manager Chris Woodward received a one-game suspension, which he accepted, and Rangers pitcher Ian Jabot received a three-game suspension that was appealed and reduced down to two games. And I feel that's appropriate. I mean, I was, I was, uh, it was pretty apparent that Woodward approved Jabot's throw behind Machado. And I'm not going to say that Woodward sent Jabot out there and told him to go do that. But based on the actions in the game and then the comments post-game, it would appear that that was more than likely the case. Now, if you recall, last week's episode, I ripped Dodgers pitcher Joe Kelly for doing the same thing against the Houston Astros a couple weeks ago. So I'm feeling the same on this one. It was completely uncalled for and just should not have happened. But the Rangers-Padres saga gets even crazier. Not only did the Padres hit a grand slam in that game, they hit one in the next game, and the game after that, and the game after that. The Padres hit a grand slam in all four games against the Rangers, making them the first team in Major League Baseball history to hit a grand slam in four consecutive games. Oh my. You really cannot make that stuff up. Talk about baseball karma. Uh, If the suspensions weren't enough, how about giving up a grand slam in all four games and then losing all four games? Yikes. The Rangers really come out of this looking like a clown show. And it hurts me to say that, but it is what it is. But uh, we'll go ahead and go around the island now. A bunch of quick hit stuff to get into. We'll start off in the National Basketball Association. The NBA has began their first round of the playoffs. And man, they have not been disappointing at all. I gave you my first round picks last week. And those are looking really solid so far. And I'll discuss those more in depth on next week's episode after the first round is complete. But three teams have already finished their first round series with a sweep. Toronto, Boston, and Miami all swept their opponents to advance to the second round. Now, I picked all those teams, 
not in a sweep, but I still picked them to win their series. So my NBA picks are looking pretty good. And the NBA's first round is going to conclude this week. So I'll recap those picks on next week's episode. And since we're talking about the first round, how about my hometown Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic? That kid is just putting on an absolute show. He has two 40-point playoff games in his first four career playoff games, including a 40-point triple-double in Game 4 when he was basically playing on one leg. Doncic was a game-time decision after suffering an ankle sprain in Game 3 in the third quarter of that game. Then he goes out and records a 43-point, 17-rebound, 13-assist game. And oh yeah, he played 46 minutes, which is the most he's played in a game in his career. And his game-winning three-pointer in overtime of game four was just electric. Uh, And here's how it sounded on the broadcast with the legendary Mike Breen making the call. Man, what a call. Uh, We got a double bang out of Mike Breen, who has only done that a few times in his career. And that was just, uh, we were watching that live, and I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, Luka Doncic is a bona fide superstar, and social media just completely lit up uh, after that three. And I mentioned last week that he's a top five player in the league. But with his performance so far in the bubble, and specifically the playoffs, He's certainly in the conversation for best overall player in the NBA. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the series plays out. But the other major news out of the NBA this past week was the uh, draft lottery. Uh, The NBA held their annual draft lottery. And I've mentioned on previous episodes how the NBA and the NHL just need to do away with the lottery and adopt uh, the NFL's draft system. But... Either way, the NBA lottery results are as follows. The Minnesota Timberwolves got the first pick. Um, Second pick belongs to the Golden State Warriors, which they missed Steph Curry and Klay Thompson all season. So the rich are getting richer here because they'll come back healthy next year, and then they get the second overall pick to throw with those guys. Third pick, Charlotte Hornets. Fourth pick, Chicago Bulls. Fifth pick, Cleveland Cavaliers. Sixth pick, Atlanta Hawks. Seventh pick, Detroit Pistons. Eighth pick, New York Knicks. Ninth pick, Washington Wizards. Tenth pick, Phoenix Suns. And the projected top picks in the draft are Georgia guard Anthony Edwards, uh, guard LaMelo Ball, who's played internationally the past couple years, and Memphis forward James Wiseman. Now, I suspect some trades are going to be coming during the draft, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how that draft ends up, especially with uh, the teams probably not going to be able to do in-person workouts. Uh, But we'll move on to the National Football League, and there was a flurry of NFL activity this past week. We're getting closer and closer to the start of the NFL season uh, as it's still starting uh, uh, Thursday, September 10th just a few weeks. 
And there have been a lot of teams who have uh, announced their plans for fans to attend games in this upcoming season. And several teams, including the Buffalo Bills, the New York Jets, the New York Giants, and the Chicago Bears, have announced that they will not have any fans in, a, uh, in attendance at all during the season. Then there have also been teams that announced that they will start the season not having any fans at their first couple home games and will decide on fans returning to the stands after those couple home games. And some of those teams include the Green Bay Packers, the Houston Texans, New Orleans Saints, and the Tennessee Titans. And then there are teams who have announced that they will have fans in the stands, albeit in a reduced capacity. And some of those teams include the Dallas Cowboys, the Los Angeles Rams, Los Angeles Chargers, Pittsburgh Steelers, Miami Dolphins, and Baltimore Ravens. Now, there's an article on ESPN.com that goes through all 32 teams' plans for fans in the stands this upcoming season. And it's pretty interesting. So if you'd like to know what your team's plan is for fans at this moment, go check that article out. Uh, I completely understand the theory of not having fans in the stands, but I don't agree with it. Uh, all fans are going to be required to wear masks. The seats are going to be separated and spaced appropriately. And the fans don't get close to the players at all. And most of the football stadiums are either outdoors or have the capability to be partially outdoors with a retractable roof. In America, uh, football is America's most popular and highest grossing sport. So let some fans into the damn stadiums. And if I can get my hands on some Cowboy tickets this year, I'm going. But the NFL did announce this past week that they're considering a bubble format for the playoffs. Now, the NFL's executive VP of football operations, Troy Vincent, said, quote, all things are on the table at the moment. And I like this idea. I think it's probably necessary. If the NFL can make it through an entire season without too many positive tests or outbreaks, I think the bubble has to be put in place for the playoffs. I've been a strong proponent of the bubbles in the NHL and the NBA, and we've seen those work. So there's no reason to think that it would work any differently in the NFL. We've all seen the bumps that the MLB has had to deal with so far their season, uh, and the NFL is probably going to have to deal with some of those too since they're following the same regular season format as the MLB and playing each team's home games in their home venues. Uh, but the NFL's playoffs come right in the prime time of cold and flu season. And since the flu has completely disappeared now that COVID is here, I think a playoff bubble format uh, is a must. And I wouldn't be surprised if the NFL ended up opting to do that. But the next piece of NFL news deals with injuries. And I mentioned last week how there have already been a couple of season-ending injuries in training camp and how I figured there would be a few more. Well, this past week, Chicago Bears announced that their cornerback, Artie Burns, tore his ACL in workouts, and he's going to miss this season. But then on Monday afternoon, the Cleveland Browns announced that their second-round rookie safety, Grant Delpit, had to be carted off the field in practice with what is believed to be a severe Achilles injury. Uh, early reports are that Delpit tore his Achilles. So that is not good. Delpit was slated to start at free safety for the Browns. But hopefully he gets a good diagnosis and doesn't have to miss his uh, entire rookie season. 
But the biggest piece of NFL news uh, broke over the weekend, and that was the contract termination of Baltimore Ravens All-Pro safety Earl Thomas. Thomas got into an altercation during practice with one of his teammates, and during this altercation, he actually punched his teammate. So the Ravens decided that that was over the line, and they terminated his contract and released him. Now, Earl Thomas has been linked to the Dallas Cowboys, who have really been trying to get him since the 2017 season. And this is probably their last chance to get him while he's still worth something. And the good news for the Cowboys is that Thomas is probably going to come at a discount now. But I've actually heard mixed reports on whether Dallas is going to sign him or not. There just seems to be too many variables with Thomas, including his age, his attitude in the locker room, and his contract demands. Now, I'm positive that Earl Thomas will get signed somewhere. He's just too good to be a free agent. Uh, But the question is, is is it going to be with the Cowboys or someone else? And now that the Browns probably lost one of their starting safeties for the year, do they sign him? We're going to have to wait and see, but I'm obviously rooting for the Cowboys to sign him. But the strangest news out of the NFL this past week deals with some COVID tests. This past week, 77 NFL players received a positive COVID test result. And these 77 players spanned across 11 teams, which led to some altered practice schedules this past weekend. Now, all those tests were processed at the bioreference lab in New Jersey. Well, the lab came out and said that all of those 77 tests had, quote, an isolated contamination during test preparation, which resulted in false positive tests. So the NFL retested all 77 of those original samples, and all the retests came back negative. And the league also conducted a quicker point-of-care test on Sunday, and all those tests were negative. Man, talk about a crisis averted. And it really makes you wonder how many of those positive tests we've seen in Major League Baseball and even really just around the country in general have also been false positives like that. I feel like this probably happened way more than the media has led on to. Uh, but either way, it's reassuring to see all of those tests negative so that uh, the, those 11 teams can resume their practices. And It's just a good sign for the NFL uh, because they're about to start their season in a couple weeks. But uh, next up is the NCAA and college football. Last week, I talked about Ohio State quarterbacks Justin Fields petition to have the Big Ten reconsider its stance on the 2020 football season. Uh, The petition gained so much steam that the Big Ten came out this past week and announced that they will not consider changing their stance. In fact, Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren said that the Big Ten's decision regarding fall sports was final and that they would not revisit the situation anymore. Wah, wah, wah. That pretty much squashes the petition and the hopes of seeing Big Ten football in the fall. Uh, But the Big Ten is currently trying to plan out a schedule in order for football to be played in the spring with the potential of starting in January. Now, the NCAA also came out and announced a change in the practice hour allotments for schools that aren't playing in the fall. In a normal college football season, schools get a 20-hour per week practice allotment. Well, since there are two Power Five conferences and several other non-Power Five conferences who aren't playing football in the fall, the NCAA announced that the schools who will not play in the fall this year will have a 12-hour-per-week practice allotment. 
Uh, it's a reduction of eight practice hours per week, but at least the NCAA is still allowing those schools to practice. The teams that are playing still get their 20-hour allotment. But the intent is for those schools to play football in the spring, so they definitely still need to be out there on the practice field, especially since all the athletes are going to be on campus taking classes. Uh, But the biggest piece of news out of the NCAA this past week was the announcement that the NCAA officially granted fall athletes an additional year of eligibility. So this effectively gives any athlete in football, soccer, volleyball, cross country a fifth and in some cases a sixth year of eligibility. Uh, It's a similar ruling to the one from the, the spring in which spring athletes got awarded an extra year of eligibility um, when their seasons were cut short by the beginning of this pandemic. And in addition to the blanket eligibility waiver, the NCAA board also approved a measure that's going to allow fall championships to uh, take place in the spring uh, if they can be conducted safely in accordance with, of course, federal, state, and local health guidelines. But the extra year of eligibility is nice. Uh, But it's going to be up to each individual school on how they handle that because granting an extra year of eligibility is going to use up a scholarship that could be given to an incoming freshman. I would suspect that there's probably not going to be a whole lot of players that use those extra years of eligibility, especially not any of the uh, high-level players that we um, are familiar with. But we'll just circle back to Major League Baseball for a brief second. Washington Nationals pitcher Steven Strasburg announced that he's having surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome in his pitching hand. And, of course, this surgery is going to cause him to miss the rest of the 2020 season. This guy is just a dynamic pitcher, and he's an absolute ace when he's healthy. But that seems to be the issue with him. He's never healthy. He's by far the best player in the league who just can't stay healthy. And... Truthfully, I wouldn't be surprised if the Nationals began to look at uh, realistic trade options for him during this upcoming season just due to his inability to stay healthy. But another quick injury note, this one comes from the NBA. Boston Celtics forward Gordon Hayward suffered a grade three ankle sprain in game one of their series against the Philadelphia 76ers last week, and he's expected to miss about four weeks. Uh, His injury didn't seem to slow the Celtics down as they won all four of their games to complete the sweep of the 76ers. But the only way we see Hayward back on the court in the playoffs here is if the Celtics make it to the finals. And with the top-heavy Eastern Conference, we may have seen the last of Gordon Hayward this year. But how about a first on Sports Island here? For the first time ever, Uh, IndyCar Racing has made the show. Now, I'm a big IndyCar fan, so I wanted to squeeze this in here. This past weekend was the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500, the Indy 500, which is held annually at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And this year's race, of course, was very different with no fans in attendance at all. Um, The fans helped make this event a great spectacle one of the greatest racing spectacles in all of the country. So it was very odd not seeing anyone in the grandstands. But that didn't stop it from being a good race. Uh, In the end, Takuma Sato won his second career Indy 500, making him the 20th driver to win the Indy 500 twice and just the uh, sixth driver born outside the U.S. to win the race. But the race 
ended up uh, the top five. You had Takuma Sato, Scott Dixon, Graham Rahal, Santino Ferrucci, and Joseph Newgarden. And Scott Dixon was the favorite to win, and he certainly had the best car all day, but a late caution caused Sato to stay ahead of Dixon and win the race. But all things being considered in such a crazy year, it was just another successful race. And hopefully next year we'll be back to normal and we'll be able to have fans pack the grandstands like they normally do. But that's going to wrap up the 10th episode of Sports Island. Of course, the 10th episode is a little milestone marker. So I uh, just thank you all for being the best part of Sports Island and continuing to listen to the podcast I hope you guys continue to enjoy it. Uh, Be sure to like it, review, subscribe, share it, and uh, give me a shout at Sports Island Podcast on Facebook if you want me to discuss anything. But um, I hope you all have a good week. Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.